0: Father, we are thankful that this evening we can gather under your word as it is authoritative over our lives, and we pray that as we continue to work our way through the gospel of Mark that you will speak the beauty of the gospel to us, that we would understand the work of Christ and the call of discipleship that you have given to us, and ultimately may we be fruitful disciples as we study and are empowered to do your word. Let's please pray this in Christ's name, amen we're going to read chapter 2 to chapter 3 verse 6 I don't know how much reaction they get through tonight but we're going to read it anyway chapter 3, the opening, we're going to read because it goes with the end of chapter 2 they need to be read together so we'll start in the beginning of chapter 2 and work our way through when he entered Capernaum again after some days it was reported that he was at home So many people gathered together that there was no more room, not even in the doorway, and he was speaking the word to them. They came to him bringing a paralytic carried by four of them. Since they were not able to bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and after digging through it, they lowered the mat on which the paralytic was lying. Seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does he speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Right away Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were thinking like this within themselves and said to them, Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up, take your mat, and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he told the paralytic, I tell you, Get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately he got up, took the mat, and went out in front of everyone. As a result, they were all astounded and gave glory to God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Jesus went out again beside the sea. The whole crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. Then, passing by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the toll booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he got up and followed him. While he was reclining at the table in Levi's house, many tax collectors and... Sinners were eating with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who were following him. And the scribes who were Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors. They asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard this, he told them, It's not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and asked him, Why do John's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples fast? But your disciples do not fast. Jesus said to them, The wedding guests cannot fast while the groom is with them, can they? As long as they have the groom with them, they cannot fast. But the time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, and they will be fast on that day. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new patch pulls away from the old cloth, and a worse tear is made. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost as well as the skins. No new wine is put into fresh wineskins. On the Sabbath he was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to make their way, picking some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, what are they doing Which what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Or why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? He said to them, have you never read what David and those who were with him did when he was in need and hungry? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abithar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priest, and also gave some to his companions? Then he told him, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for Sabbath. So then the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Jesus entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a shriveled hand. In order to accuse him, they were watching him closely to see whether or not he would heal him on the Sabbath. He told the man with a shriveled hand, Stand before us. Then he said to them, Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath, or to do evil, to save life, or to kill? But they were silent. After looking at them with anger, he was grieved at the hardness of their hearts, and told the man, Stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Immediately the Pharisees went out and started plotting with the Herodians against him, how they might kill him. Well, there's lots again in this section, four main units in chapter 2 and beginning chapter 3, and once again carrying on from chapter 1 where we've seen the prologue to this gospel that Mark writes to the Roman church, that is facing the persecution of Nero and reminding them of the gospel and the proclamation of the kingdom of God through Christ, who is the Son of God. And of course, we mentioned that that's not just a claim of divinity, but Son of God is a reference to his humanity as he is the new and faithful Adam and Israel's Messiah as he is faithful Israel and doing what Israel could never do. And so we've seen the baptism, we've seen the wilderness temptations and the significance of that And we saw last week that his ministry, this suffering servant prophesied in Isaiah, ultimately begins in the region of Galilee. And for those who were here last week, pop quiz. Was Galilee a small place or a large place? Large place. Large place. place. In fact, some people think of Galilee as just this town by a a lake that shared his name, but it, it was 240 villages in the region. 15,000 people in each village. So the time of Jesus is 3 million people in Galilee. And Mark says this is where the suffering servant prophesied in Isaiah, the Messiah, began the ministry of announcing the kingdom of God has come near through him. And so once again in chapter 2, we are not entering a new region, but we are still in the region of Galilee. And so the first account... We see that Jesus has returned to Capernaum, which reminds us that he had been there before. And so in chapter one, we are reminded that he was there along with Simon and Andrew and James and John, the first disciples that were called. He stayed with Simon's mother-in-law where all the healings took place. He, He went into the synagogue and he began to teach the law and the prophets and announcing that the kingdom of God was near. And we also have seen that in that ministry, there was a a major issue that was already arising. The emphasis was the teaching about the gospel and the kingdom of God, but the miracles which he was doing, which testified to the coming of the kingdom and a foretaste of the kingdom, began to be the focus of the people. And so here it says that when he returned to Capernaum, that very place where that issue was taking place, he doesn't announce that he had returned. But rather, it was reported that he was at home, which, once again, scholars believe to be the the home of Simon's mother-in-law. And once people found out that he was back, Mark notes that so many people gathered together that there was no more room, once again, at the house, not even in the doorway. And So then what does Jesus do? Does he go out and begin to cast out demons and heal the sick, as he had previously done? No, once again, the emphasis of how the gospel was going to be proclaimed and the kingdom of God was going to come was through the preaching and teaching ministry of the word of God. So Mark highlights, he goes out and he was speaking the word to them. So he was preaching the law and the prophets. He was preaching that the kingdom of God has come near. And so that's the content that Mark gives to us. The teaching content isn't very descriptive, but we know it from based on what he has said in the gospel. And then, as he is teaching this large crowds, the kingdom of God has come near, the law and the prophets, something happens and the sermon is interrupted. Now I have a confession to make. I get distracted very easily when preaching. If, whether it's a crying baby or lack of even that machine at the back that turns on on cue every time when I start to pray, whatever it may be. I can get very distracted. That's not a complaint. That's just the reality of how it affects me as a, as a normal human being. I can't even imagine what it was like for Jesus to be preaching and this to take place as he is communicating. Because what takes place? Well, there's a group of four people with their friend who is a paralytic. And clearly they have heard of Jesus' healing ministry. They have heard of, of his greatness and his great teaching that has spread through the region. And so they bring the paralytic to him. But there's so much people gathered at the door, they can't get in through the door. It's like a Costco on a Saturday afternoon. It's so busy, they can't get through. And so Mark says, well, they didn't go home. They didn't just say, okay, we can't get through. Let's just carry on and come back another day. But rather, they were so determined that they actually went up onto the roof. Now, that doesn't mean they went to the local hardware store and rented a ladder, at the time that the houses were built there was a ladder built into the home in which they can climb up to the roof and then it was made of different kind of materials and straw and, and clay and, and what happened was they began to tear the roof apart. Mark is so descriptive it actually says that he they removed the entire roof. And so Mark doesn't give us anything here about whether or not they made an insurance claim on the roof and <laughs> thought this is ridiculous. Or, or even the complaint of the people that were listening to the message as the materials began to fall on them and make dust everywhere. That's Mark's not interested in that. But the interesting thing that Mark wants us to be reminded about is what did Christ do when this paralytic was lowered down before him? Of course, many people no doubt were thinking, ah, finally, maybe a chance for another miracle. After all, we've seen so many already in Capernaum, and... We understand he's teaching, but a lot of us have come here to see more healings and more miraculous things. So here's a chance. What is Jesus going to do? And so what we see in Jesus' response is actually quite unexpected and quite provocative. And it leads to actually great conflict with many of the the Pharisees and the religious leaders. He looks at them. He sees the faith, the faith of, of these men who have brought them And lowered the paralytic down. And clearly they believed that Jesus was going to heal him. Because it's a lot harder to bring someone back up than it is to put them down. So clearly they believed that guy's walking out. And we're going to go back together. Five of us walking. And Jesus sees their faith. And what does he say? He says, son, a term of endearment, your sins are forgiven. Now. Mark doesn't give us the context, but I can tell you right now that that is not what they came to hear. Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, they're Jews. They're obviously interested in the forgiveness of sins. They go and they sacrifice at the temple. They carry out the law. They know how to sacrifice for sin takes place, so they're clearly wanting sins to be forgiven, but they did not come to Jesus for that. They came for physical healing. So then what is it that Mark wants to remind us and teach us about the mission and the identity of Christ that comes from this particular teaching? Well, the first thing is it reminds us of humanity's greatest need. See, the four men and the paralytic who no doubt consented, there's no no lack of consent. We're going through the roof of a stranger, and I'm being lowered down. I'm the one going down here. There's consent. The greatest need of that man was not his physical condition. But Jesus identifies it as his sin. Yes, he was paralyzed. But what was the greatest need that Jesus cared about and had come for? Not his physical inability to walk, but his spiritual depravity. relationship with God, which had gone astray through sin. Why was he experiencing the inability to walk? Where does sickness come from? Sin. Now, it's important to understand something here. Mark is not saying that the man was paralyzed because of a specific sin which he had done in his life. You know, we've already seen back in chapter 1 that Mark does separate sickness and demon possession. They're not the same thing in some cases. So we shouldn't say that. But what's happening here is ultimately... He gets not just to the fruit of sin, but the root. This is the issue. This is the ultimate thing that must be fixed. And this is why. Because you are a sinner. You live in a sinful world. You are experiencing the effects of sin. Now, some cases, sin is related to our behavior. You sleep around. You get an STD. You you get drunk. You drive. You kill someone. There is a relationship to that. But Mark's not saying that. He's just saying the greater need here that Jesus addresses is the man's sin. Any ministry, any gospel ministry, that is more focused on the physical condition of an individual more than their desperate need to be freed from sin is not in line with Jesus' own ministry. So it's an important lesson. Jesus comes to deal with sin. The second thing is that his his ministry does include physical healing. Notice what he goes on to say. He says, "Well, your sins are forgiven." And then he goes on and he actually heals the man. So what they came for, he does do, but first he deals with first thing first. This is the story of the healing that Christ gives those who trust in the gospel. Where does it begin? Ultimately, your sin. What's one of the fruits of us being healed of sin? At some point, when Christ returns, whenever he does, the promises will be glorified, and that glorification is complete physical healing. Now, the proof... And the foretaste of that kingdom, when Christ healed that man to be able to get up and carry his mat and walk out, he was showing this is a foretaste of the kingdom. Even the prophet Isaiah said that in the kingdom the lame will walk. There will be no, none of that. And so in some cases, physical healing may take place, but it's not that even is an incomplete healing. The gospel of sin first, which then leads one day to complete physical healing. So all of our bodies are decaying right now. But the promise is, the gospel, there will be a day where complete physical healing will take place. But it begins with the ultimate issue of healing of sin. That's Jesus' primary concern. So it's an important gospel lesson that we see declared even in this particular case. Now, of course, the fact that he said your sins are forgiven and then healed the man to show the authority that he has the ability to forgive sins and deal with sin led to some conflict with the Pharisees. Who can forgive sin but God alone? And so again, another reference to his identity, that the one who was standing before them wasn't just a healer, wasn't just a great religious teacher, but he indeed was God. Now notice the term that Christ uses for himself. What does he refer himself as? Son of man. Now some people hear son of man, and they immediately think of his humanity. Son of God, his divinity. Son of man, his humanity. But in Daniel 7... Son of Man is actually a term for the Messiah who brings about God's kingdom. And so we have saw that all through Revelation during our study, the Son of Man. And so here, he's saying, I am Israel's Messiah, but even the reality of the ability to forgive sin shows that I'm not just human, I'm also fully God, and that's part of what the scriptures have foretold. And so Jesus refers to himself as that Son of Man who brings about the kingdom of God, and he's not just a human Messiah, he is Yahweh himself. The scholar writes that Son of Man was Christ's favorite designation of himself, which was a claim to be the Messiah, but one which wouldn't as easily be attacked as if he went around saying he was the Son of God. It means the same thing, but not as outright and blunt as if he was going around saying son of God all the time so that's why we see Christ continually refer to himself as the son of man so yes as we think of the incarnation this month no doubt refers to his humanity Mark emphasizes the humanity of Christ more than any other gospel but we think in terms of the biblical understanding of the foretold scriptures The Messiah who brings about God's kingdom, not just human, but fully God. And you can't separate the two. Even last week, we looked at Demon's confession of Jesus. They could not separate the humanity and the divinity of Jesus. So it's pretty sad sometimes when the theologians of the demonic are are more consistent than theologians of the church. The second thing we see about his divinity, which is very striking, and and some of us may wonder, well, how do the Pharisees not get confused about this? But he exposes them and their thoughts. The key thing is their thoughts. They're not actually saying this out loud to him. He knows what they're thinking before they even think it. And he begins to address them, saying, why are you thinking this? Who has the ability to forgive sins but God alone? And then he goes on to heal the man to show them, truly, this is the case. I am the Son of Man, and I do have authority to forgive sins, and this is why I've come. The ultimate reason. And so if you know Psalm 139, that Yahweh knows our thoughts before we even think them. We see Christ, the incarnate Son of God, knowing the thoughts of all those who are around him. Even though it may be hidden from those people that are all gathered there, Christ knew exactly what they were thinking. So he is divine. of course an important reminder that that means that if that's the case with Jesus even with the Pharisees surely there is no thought or no hidden thing that we can hide from our Lord we may be able to hide thoughts from people maybe if you're angry with somebody you're not actually telling them how you think well I wish I could just you know what well they may not know that but the Lord sees it So, it's an important reminder of who he is and his power and his majesty to know our thoughts before we even think them. So, he is the Messiah, the Son of God, the divine Israel's Messiah, who comes to deal with sin, which involves physical healing, but ultimately, the main healing he has come to bring is to heal our relationship with God. Now, what happens then after the paralytic is healed? Verse 12, immediately he got up, took the mat, went out in front of everyone. As a result, they were all astounded and gave glory to God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. I want to highlight something about this. This is a good response. This is not the response that gives you entrance into the kingdom. We saw that when Christ was preaching the gospel and teaching the word back in chapter 1, he was saying, Repent and believe the good news. Here we see a lot of excitement about what's taken place. Jesus is exciting. The teaching is exciting. The miracle is exciting. But notice what is not in the response. There is no repentance. There is no we must turn to him. They're they're praising God and they're saying, oh God, you're good and you're great. But they fail to turn to the very one that God calls them to turn to, the Messiah. Is so that's something we're going to see in the Gospels time and time again. Excitement about Jesus, but not repentance. And that's something that carries on into the church today. I'm excited to see this. I'm excited about this. I'm excited about that. But there's no actual genuine repentance. And those are the kind of things that Jesus in the Gospels here in Mark are warning against. That's not the kind of belief that causes one to enter the kingdom not enough to hear about Jesus and be excited about him, the true repentance over sin and trust in who he really is and dealing with the sin issue is ultimately what is important. So the first, once again, Capernaum, another healing, but Jesus used the opportunity once again to teach them, that same crowd that was so obsessed with healings before, The ultimate healing for which I have come is sin. If you find yourself disease-ridden in this world, but you are in Christ, you can rejoice because you have the greatest healing that has ever been known. Even though you may physically be sick, your soul is healed with Christ and God, and you are forevermore right with him and one day that complete physical healing is coming so you can rejoice even in the sickness I was listening to a false teacher on YouTube the other day because I do that sometimes to see what's being preached and he was saying I don't know anything good that can come out of sickness well if you don't understand this and this then of course it's not the gospel So that's the first account here in Capernaum. Heals the sin, which will result in physical healing. Then the call of Levi. After this astonishment, Jesus went out again beside the sea. Clearly you can see yourself that that Jesus is not infatuated or concerned or wooed by all the crowds that are around him. He goes off again into solitude. The whole crowd, though, was coming to him. And what did he do? Okay, more more miracles, more, more healing time. No, once again, Mark emphasizes, and so he began to teach them. To teach them the word of God, the law, and the prophets, and the kingdom of God is near. And so many went to him again. But here, Mark is highlighting the fact that there was one individual who did not go out there. As he was passing by, so he wasn't part of the crowd that originally went out to hear Jesus teach, he saw Levi, the son of Elpheus, sitting at the toll booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he got up and followed him. Now, what is important to know about this? Well... The guy is sitting at a toll booth, okay? This isn't a matter of you can take this particular road if you pay this price and get on this interstate. No, this toll booth is a matter of a tax collecting place where the the Roman tax collectors would collect taxes. And so here, Jesus encounters a tax collector who was also Jewish, and people knew him. He was the son of Alphaeus. He was known as being a traitor to Israel because tax collectors, Jewish tax collectors who joined with Rome were seen as being people guilty of treason. When a Jew entered the customs service, he was regarded as an outcast from society. He was even disqualified from being a judge or a witness in the court sessions because he had betrayed his own nation. So here Jesus is walking by. The crowds are going Christ. They're clearly walking by this guy in disgust. They don't want anything to do with him. He's a traitor. And Jesus sees him and says, come, follow me. Which anyone who's reading the gospel in the time of the Roman world and tax collectors would think, whoa, this, something big is going to happen here. We need to be paying attention, or they should be. Now, what does this remind us of? Well, we saw the call of the disciples last week, and here we see another important reminder about discipleship. First of all, about ultimately the call of Christ upon disciples' lives. We're going to see time and time again in scriptural truth that discipleship never begins with us seeking God, but God coming to get us. The gospel is not about humanity waking up one day and saying, I want to get right with the maker of heaven and earth. Paul says in Romans 3.11, as he quoted as he quotes Isaiah, no one is good, no one is seeking God. Now, part of our sinful nature and idolatry is that we, we people are, are seeking idols and they're seeking gods, but the true, one true God, no one seeks him. Apart from Christ coming and calling tax collector levi he wasn't looking for christ but yet god shows up and says follow me so it's important to understand because you're saved i'm saved the church is saved and and we think biblically about this not because we did anything to earn it or to work our way towards it. We weren't reaching out for God saying, meet me halfway. The gospel is you're completely dead in your sins. You're only saved because through Christ, God comes and says, wake up, O oh sinner. Period. Grace. That's an amazing thing. That's an amazing truth. If it's grace and the wonder of Christ. So here Paul, Paul, no. Mark emphasizes that Jesus goes and calls this particular outcast to come. And just when you think, well, Jesus ministered to the outcast, this one guy, it just continues to get worse. Because then they go back to this tax collector's home, and many other tax collectors and sinners begin to join them in a feast and Marcus quick to emphasize that there were many. And so here we see again Jesus ministry who is he come to minister to? Well, tax collectors were considered the scum of the earth, the sickest individuals that could possibly exist. And here he is having a feast with them all. The gospel ministry, the gospel Jesus says, I've come not for those who think they're righteous, but for those who are sick. Including those that the world would consider the scum of the earth. And so we, important reminder for us, because last week we talked about how Christ comes to not just call us to be disciples, but to make us disciples who fish for men. And so part of the responsibility of evangelism is making sure that we are faithful to minister to the people as Christ ministers to people. The outcasts, the ones that the world forsakes, those that the world would say, ah, you you clearly have just ruined your life, You, we can't help you, you don't even want to help yourself, that Christ's gospel goes to everyone. And there's something important here that Jesus ultimately teaches these Pharisees who are quite concerned about this. Who is a sinner? Who are the sick? Not just those who are the scum of the earth that you would say are sinners, because the Jews looked at the Gentiles and the Jews looked at the at the tax collectors as Gentiles and said, "You are sinners." But Jesus is saying, "No, everyone is a sinner. Everyone's a sinner." And so these these tax collectors that you're saying are the scum of the earth, they are in no different shape than you are, my friend. And so the gospel is for those who come and repent, and repentance requires the awareness and the acknowledgement of sin, just as guilty of sin as anyone, no matter how moralistic or how great you may look in the eyes of society, everyone is guilty of sin before God, and that is the ultimate healing that Christ has come to bring, so we see it on display here with these people who were outcasts and treated as outcasts by the Jews, So it's an important reminder about discipleship, it's an important reminder about the nature of the gospel and who the gospel is for, the sick, not those who think that they are righteous on their own, and it confronts the Pharisees. Pharisees means separated ones. They they separated themselves, they were zealous for the law, they didn't want anything to do with sinners, and they were really upset because here Jesus is having a meal with these unclean people. You know, the Pharisees, we see banquets here. The Pharisees had banquets. They would invite all the elite Pharisees and the zealous ones for the law, and you couldn't get in unless you were of that moralistic, zealous nature. And here they're saying, why are you eating with such people? What kind of banquet is this? It's just, this is really bad. This is the worst banquet we've ever seen. Man, ours are great, aren't they? And Jesus actually, in this own encounter with these tax collectors and these sinners gives them a foretaste of what heaven will be like. Because we know in the Gospels, we know in, the, in the, even in the the prophets that the kingdom of God is described as a banquet, in which the Messiah and God has fellowship, but with who? Well, the emphasis here is for those. Who were sick, for those who were sinners, who Christ came to heal. So here they are having that fellowship, and it's a foretaste of of the kingdom of God. We're all going to be in the presence of Christ, in the kingdom of God enjoying fellowship with God in that Messianic banquet, but well, not because we ourselves deserve to be there, but we were sick, and Christ came to heal. And notice, who's not a part of that banquet? The righteous Pharisees. Those who think that they, are, they aren't sick. If you think that you can earn your own righteousness and there's you nothing wrong with you, the kingdom of God is going to be you on the outside as those who are sinners acknowledging the need for Christ are brought in to the actual banquet. So the reality is, hell will consist of many religious people. Moralistic, self-righteous, the ones that try to do it their way, and the beauty of heaven is even those that the world looked around and saw scum of the earth murderers, adulterers, whatever it may be if they've come to Christ and received such healing from sin they are clean and welcomed into the kingdom of God and that's the beauty of it that's the foretaste of the kingdom that Christ is even giving here in this picture with him eating with tax collectors and sinners verse 18 going on into another section after this the Pharisees clearly are still upset and if you notice so far every account so far has a conflict with it Jesus is ministering but conflict continues to arise and we're continuing to see this in the gospel of Mark now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting so after this big banquet with the sick takes place to foreshadow the kingdom of God Mark says two groups of people were fasting now John's disciples, at this point we know John's already been arrested he's already, he's already been arrested because it was after Jesus or it was after John's arrest, sorry, that Jesus began his ministry we see that back in chapter 1 now, clearly the fact that John still has disciples indicates the fact that some of them did not understand at all his ministry was really about. That he was the forerunner to the Christ who would come. So the fact that they are still disciples of him shows they haven't turned from following John to following the one they were called to follow in the first place. The second group is the Pharisees, who are these righteous ones that Jesus has been exposing these past two accounts. And it says they were fasting. You ever wondered what the purpose of fasting was? You hear about it a lot. Maybe it's a 30-hour famine or whatever it may be. Maybe the thought of fasting is just so devastating that you can't think of it. But the reality is, in the Old Testament, fasting had a particular meaning and association that was with it. Fasting was either done in the act of mourning so for John's disciples, the fact that John had been arrested and imprisoned, it's very possible that this was an act of mourning on their part. But in case of the Pharisees, these righteous, zealous people concerned about the law and the kingdom of God that would come, fasting was actually something which was done as a way of trying to hasten the coming of the kingdom. Show dependence upon God and try to show uh, awareness and desire and uh, hastening of the coming kingdom and in fact uh, in, in modern terms every Tuesday and Thursday the Pharisees would fast they were that zealous about it so it was, it was a great practice in their, in their life and it was something that they took great pride in, part of their righteousness part of their banquets clearly the banquets didn't happen on Tuesdays and Thursdays but the question is, why why are John's disciples fasting, doing this? Why do we fast on Tuesday and Thursday, both the kingdom of God and your disciples who are claiming they're interested in the kingdom of God? Why are they not fasting? What kind of irreverence is this? Jesus responds to them in verse 19. Jesus said to them, the wedding guests cannot fast while the groom is with them, can they? So first things first, what is Jesus saying to the Pharisees? Well, don't you know that right now it's almost it's like a wedding has taken place? Have you ever been to a Jewish wedding or heard of a Jewish wedding? Fasting is not allowed. It's to be a joyous occasion, and so the and no one goes to a wedding and fasts. Well, please let me. I'm gonna not have any hors d'oeuvres or the main meal. Please no, no, no one does that. A time of joy and celebration, and so Jesus is saying to them here, "Don't you realize that now is not the time for fasting and mourning? Now is the time for joy." But why? What's this wedding? Well, the groom has come to be with the bride. Now, if they knew the law, if they knew the scriptures, they would immediately should think, "Oh my goodness!" The prophet Isaiah spoke of the Messiah coming to his people as a bride, as a groom comes for his bride. In Isaiah 54 verse 5, Yahweh himself is referred to as the husband of his people. In the kingdom of God, the Messiah would come like a groom for his bride, the people. And so here, the kingdom of God is near because the the incarnate Messiah, Yahweh, the husband, has come to be with those who will be part of his bride the kingdom of God which you are fasting for which you are hastening and saying please come soon you are failing to see that it has come near and it has come near through me because I am the groom who has come to be with his church the bride and of course we see Paul refer to that imagery of the bride of, of Christ the church and, and Christ being the husband and, and the reality of marriage being that picture and reflection of it as we see the husband lead and, and the wife in that submissive role, but the reality of it being the picture between Christ and the church. And so here we see it a beautiful thing, a beautiful union, a oneness. So he's rebuking them again. Why would you fast? Why would you fast if you truly knew who I was? And the kingdom that you have been praying to be hastened, if you really knew that it was already here, near then you wouldn't be going around fasting, but the joy would be overflowing within you. There will be a time when the groom will be taken. There will be a time when the groom's immediate presence would not be with the disciples, and of course the Spirit of God had not yet been poured out at this time, so there would be a time in which there would be distant, and then fasting would be appropriate, but not when Christ is present. but joy. Joy, because the presence of the groom was with his bride. Church, we live in a day where Christ's presence is not removed in the same sense that it was. When the disciples purely had his physical body before the coming, of the holy spirit now Christ's presence dwells within us we don't have the physical body yet that we have yet touched or or seen or but his presence is with us and so just a reminder one of the characteristics of having union with Christ that we even see here in this wedding feast is the spirit of god the reality of of the union between the groom and the bride like a wedding Fruit should be joy. Should be joy. Because of the presence of the king. Now, clearly the Pharisees are not up to date on the whole reality of the groom being present. They have missed a lot of things. And and ultimately, Jesus confronts them on the fact that you are missing this. You're so zealous about the law, you're so zealous about your customs, you're so zealous about your fasting, that if you really want to experience what's going on here, things have got to change. So he goes on to say something which is quite interesting. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth in an old garment, otherwise the new patch pulls away from the old cloth and a worse tear is made. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost as well as the skins. No new wine is put into fresh wineskins. And some are thinking, okay, Jesus, you lost me here. What in the world are you talking about? We've gone from fasting now to the matter of new wine and wineskins. Well, the promise of Isaiah, the promise of the prophets, one of the characteristics of the kingdom of God, is that there would be new wine, a joy and blessing. And so he's saying that the old pattern, the old wineskins, the old customs, the old things that they're used to, the old things which they have been living in, their dependence upon the law, is not going to get you into the kingdom where that new wine and that joy and that relationship between the groom and the bride is. you're trusting in that, you'll be on the outside of the banquet, which is exactly what we've been learning in Galatians for the past five weeks. They're going around being, oh, we're righteous, we're zealous, we're keeping the law. And he's saying, no, the new wine, if you want to experience this joy, if you want to experience this kind of union and the coming of the kingdom, these customs, these things you're trusting in, this law, you've got to stop working in this way and this manner, and customs and things are going to have to change completely. And it's an important reminder that, that you know Christianity is not just a patch you put on Judaism just something you attach and say oh just a continuation yes yes fulfillment continuation but christ changes everything the way we worship the way we receive atonement for sin the whole ceremonial law is thrown out why so things consistently are being challenged by the gospel, and one of them is, do not trust in your righteousness, do not trust in these customs. What foolish customs these old wineskins do. You fast on Tuesdays and Thursdays to hasten the kingdom. You do this, you'll never see it. So there's lots of conflict coming from the religious leaders. Now the ironic part in Mark's gospel is these religious leaders are the teachers of Israel. And here they're being consistently confronted by faithful Israel and the Messiah Jesus Christ who is Yahweh himself. So confronted about fasting, responds there's a wedding the room has come for the bride yahweh has come for his people but in order to experience that you've got to abandon the old trust in the law in which you've had of course that means coming to the kingdom through repentance not through your own righteousness and your law Pharisees, even though they are being confronted with the truth, still are are deaf to the, the teachings of Christ, because as we go on into the next section, they once again are in critical mode of not only Christ, but his disciples. On the Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to make their way, picking some heads of grain. Pharisee said to him look why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath He said to them have you never read what David and those who were with him did when he was in need and hungry how he entered the house of God in the time of Abathir the high priest and ate the bread of the presence which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests and also gave some to his companions the Sabbath was made for man not man for Sabbath so then the Son of Man is Lord even at the Sabbath and then because they clearly listen to that teaching about the Sabbath. In chapter 3, again he enters the synagogue. If the Sabbath. Mark makes that note evident. And there's a man with a shriveled hand. and He says, stand before us. And he puts the Pharisees on the, the hot seat. Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. Looking around at them with anger, he was grieved at the hardness of their hearts and told the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Immediately the Pharisees went out and started plotting with the Herodians against him, how they might kill him. So conflict once again taking place, not only about the reality of him forgiving sin, and that being his ultimate ministry, not only the reality of him eating with tax collectors, not only the reality of them not fasting, and being reverence toward the law. But here, they're particularly upset because his people and he himself are irreverent towards the Sabbath. Two Sabbath accounts, two works, which are being accused. First of all, the disciples begin to pick some heads of grain. Now the other gospels say they're doing it because they're hungry. But one of the things that was allowed in Deuteronomy 23, 25 was as you go through the, the fields, the outside of the fields. If when you're traveling, you could pick some grain. You couldn't go in and harvest. That's stealing. But as you're walking, you go and, oh, here, help my. It's kind of like, you know, you're you're going blueberry picking. <laughs> right? And, oh, well, maybe just a couple just to. You're not, you're not taking an entire bucket. But it was actually there to help those who were traveling by, who needed to be fed. For those who were poor, it was able to come in and be a, a blessing to them. That's why it was given. And so the law allowed it. But the issue for the Pharisees was, they're doing this on the Sabbath. Now, Sabbath, the fourth commandment, you shall not work on the Sabbath. That's what Christ affirms, even in his own teachings. But the problem was, the Pharisees began to interpret many different things about what it meant to work or not work on the Sabbath. Let me just give you an outline of what the 24 chapters of the Sabbath laws written by the Pharisees contained. In the Talmud, which is the the Pharisee uh, Sabbath laws, you couldn't... Things like you could lift something up and put something down, but only from certain places to certain places. You could lift it up in a public place and put it down in a private place, or you could lift it up in a private place and put it down in a public place. Confused yet? You could put it up in a wide place and put it in a legally free place, on and on and on. No burden could be carried that weighed more than a dried fig, or half a fig carried two times. You put an olive in your mouth and rejected it because it was bad, you couldn't put a whole one in the next time because the palate had tasted the flavor of a whole olive. If he threw an object in the air and caught it with the other hand, it was a sin. If he caught it in the same hand, it wasn't. If a person was in one place and he reached out from his arm for food and the Sabbath overtook him, he would have to drop the food and not return his arm. Or he'd be carrying a burden and that would be sin. A tailor couldn't carry his needle. A scribe couldn't carry his pen. People pupil couldn't carry his books. No clothing could be examined unless somehow you find a lice and, and inadvertently kill it. Wool couldn't be dyed. Nothing could be sold. Nothing could be bought. Nothing could be washed. A letter cannot be sent, even if it was sent via a heathen. No fire could be lit. Cold water could be poured on warm, but warm can be poured on cold. An egg could not be boiled, even if all you did was put it in the sand. And bring to Israel, you know that there are times in the year when the sand is so hot you can actually boil an egg. That was not allowed. You cannot bathe for fear when the water fell out, you might actually wash the floor. If a candle was lit, you couldn't put it out. If it wasn't lit, you couldn't light it. Chairs can be moved because they might make a rut. Women couldn't look in a glass or they find a white hair and be tempted to pull it out. Woman couldn't wear jewelry because jewelry weighs more than a dried fig. A radish couldn't be left in salt because it'd become a pickle, and that's work. No more grain could be picked than you could in a lamb's mouth. And this is just not even scratching the surface. Of the Sabbath laws that the Pharisees had taken from, you shall not work on the Sabbath. And one of the things was they said... That the act of taking from the the picking the head of grain as you're going through, they classify that as full-on harvesting. So, Jesus' disciples are walking through and they're hungry. Some may say peckish. <laughs> Just want to throw some words out there. Green, New vocabulary. Now, <laughs> and the Pharisees are saying. That's harvesting. Jesus, why why are your disciples doing that? And now, interestingly enough, Jesus goes and he says something that really is, is quite interesting. He appeals to David, but really what he is saying behind this is Yes, yes, I know the Talmud. But have you read the Bible lately? Have you read the word of God for which the actual law of God is in? I know all your little rituals and all your things, and you didn't bathe this morning because you're afraid of washing the floor. I know that. But have you actually read what the scriptures say? The scriptures which you are zealous for. Now he appeals to a very interesting example. I'm going to tell you, this is a tough, tough example. Because he appeals to an example in David's life, where he is on the run from King Saul, even though he's the actual rightful king, and with his men, with his army, he becomes to a point where they are so hungry and desperate for food, David goes into the temple and takes the the bread, which is reserved for the priests by the law of God, and gives it to the men who are starving. He breaks the law by giving the bread that was for the priests and gives it to those who were starving. And God, as you read in Samuel, had mercy on David for that act. Now why did he have mercy on him? Because, and this is the interesting thing, even though the ceremonial violation of the law took place, place, ultimately his actions were still in line with the spirit of the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. See, in that moment, why did David break that ceremonial law, even though he knew it was wrong, why did he really do it? Because he desperately cared for those people and their well-being. And so even though he broke the law, God had mercy upon him because his intentions were still ultimately in line with the spirit of the law. Now, I'm not going to get into it tonight, but some people will say, here we go. That's the kind of thing where we see God having mercy on sin. For instance, Rahab lies, and she's counted in the hall of fame for faith. <laughs> Why? For the sake of the benefit of God's people, she lied. It was a violation of the law, but God had mercy upon her. Bring it into modern context from 30, 40 years ago. Is there a Jew in your basement? No, we don't have any. They lied. There's lots in the basement, probably. What are they ultimately caring for? The well-being of the person. Now, please do not get me wrong. This is not an excuse to go out and break the law of God. But it's showing that even within the Old Testament, there were exceptions where God had mercy upon the people. The Pharisees know this. Here's the ironic part. David was guilty of breaking the law of God. Yet God had mercy upon him because David had the right attitude towards the people. Here the disciples are guilty not of breaking God's law, but of the Pharisees' law, and there is no mercy taking place. So it's a different law altogether, and unlike God who had mercy upon David when it was God's law that was violated, they're not showing any mercy at all. It's completely different scenarios. So what is he ultimately saying? Their rituals, their practices, everything they are doing, they've become so legalistic. They've lost sight of the ultimate purpose of the law, and they've ultimately lost sight of the Sabbath. He goes on, the next thing he asks them, what is the Sabbath for anyway? Is it a day for doing good in life, or for harm and killing? And ultimately, the, the principles taught in the Old Testament regarding the Sabbath is it's a day of rest set apart from the other six days of the normal labors of, of life to, to worship God, to love God, to rest, and loving and worshiping God includes loving your neighbor. It's a day of life and blessing, not a day to be to dread. You think the Jews were going around thinking, oh Sabbath is coming, I'm looking forward to it. It wasn't a day of blessing. He says it was a day created for man to be a day of blessing. But here, all their, their teachings and all their legalistic rules, they've lost sight of the very purpose of the law altogether and ultimately the Sabbath. And so Jesus completely rebukes their thinking. Completely rebukes the Talmud. Completely rebukes all these 24 chapters of Sabbath law saying you've missed the point all together. God had mercy on someone who actually broke his law, and you know that. Where is the love for neighbor that you would not have mercy on someone who broke your law, not even God's law? And so why does he have the ability to confront them, to expose them? Keep in mind, these are the teachers of Israel. And here there's this rabbi showing up and saying, Yeah, you're completely wrong. And by the way, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. Okay. Son of man, once again, the Messiah that brings about the kingdom. But who is actually Lord of the Sabbath? God. Who wrote the law of God, the fourth commandment? God. So here he's saying... I am the one who wrote the commandment, I know what the Sabbath is about, I know its purpose, and you have completely sabotaged it. It is a day not to kill, not to harm, not to make people dread, but a day of blessing for loving and giving life. And to prove it, in the next part, he goes and he heals the man. He heals the man. It's one thing to make a claim. Here the healing again acts as a support to the validity of who he was and who he is. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, of course, we're talking about Sabbath in the, in the Jewish context of being sundown at Friday to Saturday. It's when we've talked about it. We don't need to go into much detail, but the reality of us being in Christ and being set free from the law, the Sabbath is part of the moral law, the Ten Commandments. And so we know that the Sabbath is something that isn't just dismissed but we are, we are created to be people who have Sabbath. And one in seven days, we, we take the day to have Sabbath. Now the day itself, obviously the church has argued over that. The, the reality is the church in the early church, we see in Acts, we see in, in, in the New Testament, they moved it from the Friday to, to the Lord's Day, to the day that Christ rose. And that's a fitting day for the church to have Sabbath because that's the day they meet together to worship and to glorify God. But if it's a different day, as Paul says there's liberty to do so in Colossians, then then the reality is we need to be reminded that Sabbath is something that we are called to do. It's not a matter of maybe our Lord is the Lord of the Sabbath. It is something we are called to do. It's something we are created to do. And So then what, what should we be reminded about? Well, we better make sure we understand what the Sabbath actually is. It's a day of good. It's a day created for us for our benefit, not to harm us, not to make us dread, not to be like, oh, Sunday's coming, or Sabbath's coming, whatever it may be. Oh, my goodness, I can't work. A day set apart from the other endeavors of the work, but the purpose is to worship God, to love God, to rest. And part of our loving God involves loving neighbor. To delight in God and to delight in in the neighbor, the family of God that he's given to us and to, to be thankful for for all of God's grace in the gospel. But let me just say something as we start to wrap up. How often has it been in the case in the history of the church, where just as in the case of Christ's own ministry with the disciples and the Pharisees, Sabbath has been completely misunderstood and abused. We were talking to people that were growing up saying, well, on the the Sabbath day, I couldn't even throw a frisbee. I wasn't allowed to throw a frisbee because it was work. Really? That sounds familiar. I couldn't do this. I couldn't do that. It was just a a legalistic thing. And really, it wasn't that great of a day. And, And Jesus is saying, do you not know what the Sabbath is for? A day of celebration, a day of resting from the other works that are part of the week to, to love God and to glorify Him. And that means loving your neighbor. So if you're going down the street in the winter and you see your buddy stuck in the, in the driveway because his GM SUV couldn't get out of the back way, whatever it may be. And the highest SUV, it's just a GM. That's why it's not going to work. <laughs> you, don't, you don't say, oh, I can't help you, buddy. I'm on my side bus. With... I can't work. No, we go and we love our neighbor and we care for one another. So we need to be careful that we don't end up becoming Pharisees and and doing ultimately what they did is adding to what the scriptures never said. Mm -hmm. A lot of us can have legalistic teachings that actually aren't in line with what Christ actually taught about what it means to work and not work on the Sabbath. And I've seen it. I've, I've Talked to many people. The person who I was talking to said while they were playing frisbee, they were actually witnessing to their friend, and their dad was just like, nope. Hmm. What would Jesus say to that? I think the dad would get a little butt-kicking. <laughs> Don't think the Pharisees did here. So let me get this straight. Do you know what the Sabbath is about? So it's not a day of dreading, but it's a day, it's a gift. And so may we use our Sabbath and make by God's grace the days that's different from the rest of the week to truly enjoy God, to worship Him, and to love our neighbor and to rest And the gift that He's given to us. A day for blessing, a day for goodness. Now, Pharisees, verse 6, did they, did they like that rebuke? Well, Pharisees went out and started plotting with the Herodians against him, how they might kill him. Okay, let me just not overlook this here. The Pharisees and the Herodians were not on good terms. King Herod, yes, he was one who claimed to be king of the Jews, but the Pharisees didn't really like that. But here, their hatred of Christ is so strong that they partner with the very ones they hate the most and say, we need to take him out. So we see another response to Christ that we see in the Gospels. Not only... Do we see people astonished and excited and getting emotionally hyped about Christ but never actually repenting? We see that some people we hear the good news will have their sin exposed, confronted by the truth of the scriptures, and instead of repenting, they will turn away in anger and hatred. You know anybody that hates God? That hates Christ? Well, we see it in the Gospels. Some people just flat out get angry. Despite the beauty of what he has come to do in Christ, conquering sin, despite the beauty of the fact that the kingdom of God is, is for sinners who come and trust in Christ, not for those who are righteous, despite the beauty of the groom coming for the bride and the reality of a new life and new joy and the kingdom of God coming, despite the beauty of everything that Christ is, they look at him and say, you must die. I don't want you in my life. I don't want this part of my life. I don't want it at all. Brings us back to the reality of repentance. God comes and He finds us. And we praise the Lord that those who He finds, He keeps, and we do experience the truth of the gospel. So, already different responses in the gospels already in the first two chapters. We've seen much about Christ's identity, much about His ministry, about the kingdom that comes, and much about discipleship. One thing I overlooked, and I'll close with, in terms of the story of Levi, don't don't lose the significance of, yes, follow me. The fact that Christ is the author of our discipleship, and He calls us. But notice that Levi got up and followed Him. There's a cost in this discipleship that takes place. Levi is a very wealthy individual. He's a tax collector. He's he's bringing in the bank part of the the lure of being a tax collector, betraying your nation. But here, abandoning the wealth and the trust in wealth to go on a journey that he has no idea what it's going to be about, what it's going to look like, but he knows I need to follow him. That's not a reality of discipleship. We saw Peter and Andrew leave their homes (laughs) their fishing industries last week, and and so we see the cost of discipleship, and so we pray that Christ will continue to give us that dependence and trust in him. Well let's pray and ask that the Lord will give us wisdom into all of this. There is much, once again, here, but we need to be encouraged with the truth of the gospel of who Christ is and what he's come to do. Lord, we're thankful that we can come before you and Lord, there is there is much in this text, there is much to learn from, there's much to be reminded about. And so we we thank you first and foremost for the beauty of who you are. You are the divine Son of God incarnate. You are the, the true humanity, the better Adam, the picture of what we were created to be, and ultimately the picture of who we will become because of you. Lord, we are thankful, even in this opening chapter, part of chapter two, that that you came not to just care for our needs, but you came to care for our ultimate need our need to be healed of sin a call that and a healing that we could not bring about and that we didn't even desire to bring about but even as we see with Levi your your grace your saving call comes to us so we are thankful that we are found because you found us May we never boast in our own ability or in our own merit. May we not be like the Pharisees who sought to be righteous in their own way. May we we proclaim with great joy and great confidence that even though we were sinners and we were the scum of the earth and wretched, that amazing grace has come through Christ. We are part of the kingdom of God. We will be part of the Messianic banquet where we eat, The supper of the Lamb, as we truly are fed and drink from living water which you give to your church. We know the joy is characteristic of being in your presence. That you are the groom of the church, that we are your bride, that we are one, that there is a union. And so I pray, Lord, that even as we reflect upon how your spirit dwells in us this Advent season, and forevermore that you would produce that joy within us. Lord, of what it means to be one and united with you. We pray, Lord, even as we think about the reality of your word that we would not be like the Pharisees who abused or added, became legalists to add things that your word did not say. Forgive us for the time that we have done that. We think of the Sabbath. We think of the purpose of the day of rest which you've given to us. We pray that you would empower us by your spirit to keep it as you desire it to be kept. You are the Lord of the Sabbath and you have given us instructions and so we pray that you would empower us to be thankful, to enjoy you, to worship you, to grow, and to love our neighbor. May it be a day of life. May it be a day of celebrating the gospel which you have spoken and which you continue to speak to us through this gospel. So lead us. We are mindful that you call us to be disciples so that we can go and be fishers of men. So these truths that we learned tonight, may they be more than just information, but may they transform us. That we may go and be fruitful disciples who bear fruit and make known the gospel of Christ, we pray in your name. Amen. <coughs>